1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman.
2: And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: For years, the Rikers Debate Project has taught debating skills to inmates in New York City's biggest jail. We attended a debate between two former prisoners and two university students to learn how those skills improve lives.
2: And in many ways, life has gone back to something like normal in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city, including for its street artists. We meet one who decorates the wreckage these days while wearing a bulletproof vest. First up though, Time and time again, South Africa is marking out a diplomatic stance that leans away from the West. When the UN passed a resolution for peace in Ukraine to mark a year of war, guess who abstained? The Assembly broke out in applause when the final tallies were in. 141 countries in favour, 7 against, and 32 abstentions, including from South Africa. South Africa faces a difficult balancing act, As a non-aligned country, it needs to keep on friendly terms with both Russia and the West alike. But recently, it seems as though the Balancing Act is getting more unbalanced.
3: South Africa is drifting diplomatically towards Russia and China.
2: John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent.
3: That drift is posing increasingly difficult questions for the West over how to respond. And what do you mean by drifting? What's changing? Well, Jason, let's talk about some nautical shenanigans. Late last year, there were a couple of incidents that worried Western diplomats. The first was a ship owned by a sanctioned Russian tycoon that seemed to be heading towards Cape Town. Ultimately, it diverted. But another ship, also under Western sanctions, did dock at a South African naval base in December. That ship, known as the Lady R, at the very least offloaded some weapons ordered by the South African government, and some in the diplomatic community fear that weapons may have gone from South Africa onto the ship, perhaps to Russia, and who knows from there. The South African Defence Ministry says ammunition was only offloaded nothing was unloaded, but there were still many questions. And it's an incident that has upset a lot of people in Pretoria, South Africa's capital. And if those two incidents on the high seas were not enough, then in February, there were 10 days worth of naval exercises hosted by South Africa with the Russian and Chinese navies.
2: And what has the relationship between South Africa
3: and Russia and China been
2: before now?
3: I think it's important to parse a couple of things. The first is the relations with Russia and China. Most South Africans and most diplomats from the West can understand why South Africa, like any African country, would have a close relationship with China. South Africa sources more imports from China than any other country. It's a source of foreign direct investment. And since 2010, it's been South Africa's key sponsor within the BRICS group. It actually ensured that The BRIC group became the BRICS group, which is this block of emerging markets. And South Africa is by far the smallest of that posse, which also includes Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And China's sponsorship of South Africa means that Pretoria has a seat at a bigger table than it otherwise would.
2: Okay, that's the rationale as regards China. What about as regards
3: Russia? Russia is a different case. It's far less clear what Russia offers materially to South Africa as a whole, but it does have a long history with the ANC. The Soviet Union, which also, of course, included Ukraine, supported the anti-apartheid struggle. And there are specific Russian businessmen that had donated money to the ANC, and there are specific South African politicians who have close relationships with Russia, whether that is for medical treatment, as they say, or because they have historical relations they may have studied there. And these historical and personal ties are part of the reason why South Africa has consistently abstained over UN votes to condemn Russia's activities in Ukraine, whether that was the seizing of Crimea in 2014 or the votes following the invasion of the Ukrainian mainland last year.
2: So essentially, South Africa is trying to be friends with all for many historical reasons and so on, and that's just starting to look less tenable in today's world.
3: Yes, I think that's correct. For most of the 21st century, the West was content for South Africa to have it both ways. The West was also embracing Russian money and cheap Chinese imports. And so long as South Africa was still keeping a strong economic relationship with the West, as it still does... Everybody was happy, and it seemed just a simple case of pragmatism. But two things have changed. One is that under this ANC government, it has actually done more things that are pro Russia than it has in the past. But as you say, Jason, the world has also changed. The context has fundamentally changed, and South Africa hasn't quite recognized that.
2: But the West has. What, what have Western countries been doing about that, that growing influence of Russia and China?
3: So they first tried the charm offensive... After you had the February vote to condemn Russia at the UN General Assembly, the West, particularly America, thought, "Okay, we need to try harder with South Africa. So they picked up the phone to President Cyril Ramaphosa and they asked whether he would like to come to America, to Washington, to meet Joe Biden. And Mr. Biden gave Mr. Ramaphosa a private tour of the White House. He became the first head of state to receive such an honor from Mr. Biden. And then weeks later, Mr. Ramaphosa became the first head of state to visit Britain under King Charles III. So there was a lot of wooing. But then came another vote in October following Russia's annexation of Ukrainian territory. And everyone in the West was quite hopeful that Mr. Ramaphosa, having been wined and dined, would support that resolution. But it was Mr. Ramaphosa himself that personally overruled his diplomat's advice and abstained once again. So therefore, I think South Africa is actually an interesting, broader lesson for America and Europe as they try to think through how to deal with these non-aligned countries in this new geopolitical context.
2: Well, what's the answer? If the charm offensive didn't work, then something less charming might?
3: Certainly some are advocating a tougher line. Republicans in Congress are proposing a bill that would see South Africa lose its preferential trade terms with America. And even within the Biden administration, there are people discussing whether they ought to go harder, for instance, by using some of the law enforcement and intelligence capabilities to explore some of the potential links between Russia and South African elites. And, and Western governments of all stripes are pondering whether to warn Mr. Ramaphosa about attending a potential Russia-Africa summit that's due later this year. But it'd be wrong to say that there's a decided position on all this. There are some that are more hawkish. There are some that are more dovish. In general, I think the Americans are pushing for a harder line than the Europeans. And one reason for this disagreement is the recognition that the ANC is not South Africa. If you look at what polls have been done on the Ukraine war, they all show a plurality, at least, of South Africans opposing what Russia is doing. And that matters because the ANC may not be the government, or at least the sole party in charge, come the next elections in 2024.
2: But in the meantime, South Africa as a whole is essentially diplomatically isolating itself.
3: Yes, it's an enormous act of self-sabotage, because the tragedy is that South Africa right now needs all the help it can get from its friends. It is not the singular sub-Saharan African power it was under Nelson Mandela and Thabo Mbeki. It's also increasingly apparent that the country is falling apart, that the ANC struggles to keep the lights on, that the water in the taps in much of the country is running dry, organized crime is rampant. So whereas the ANC likes to see itself as leading this big, powerful, prosperous country that is respected around the world, the reality is increasingly different, that it's running a failing pro-Russia state that can't even keep the lights on.
2: John, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has upset the balance in all manner of diplomatic relationships. But what is it all in aid of? We've got an excellent new podcast series called Next Year in Moscow that looks at the roots of the war and at its future through the lens of the Russian citizens who have exiled themselves from the country. Look for Next Year in Moscow wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded.
1: A couple of weeks ago, I spent a Monday evening at Columbia, an Ivy League university in upper Manhattan, watching a competitive debate.
4: The leader of opposition's first point proposes that cash bail or cash less inherently is worse to public safety. However, we on side government disagree.
1: The format is familiar to thousands of American high school and college students. A pair of two-person teams debate a policy proposal. In this case, the proposal was to eliminate cash bail. One side takes the government position, endorsing the proposal. The other side becomes the opposition. Each of the four participants has two speeches. And at the end, a panel of judges decides who made the best case. Columbia University counts presidents, heads of state, and Nobel laureates among its alumni. But tonight's participants were different. Two were Columbia students, their two sparring mates had served time in Rikers, New York's troubled and overcrowded jail. They were there under the auspices of the Rikers Debate Project.
5: Thank you so much for coming out to this event. We're really
1: excited to have you here. This project trains current and former inmates in the art of debate. Volunteers have taught around 1,000 prisoners debating skills over the past seven years. And that night, in a lecture hall, two former Rikers prisoners were going head-to-head against the Columbia team. They were Dominic Crispino, a former lawyer who spent six years behind bars, and Hashani Forrester, a 41-year-old combat veteran who's studying for a bachelor's degree at New York University. Uh, they came down and they offered the services. You know, they were very great to us. You know, our uh, teachers' debating skills. Both are Rikers Debate Fellows, former prisoners paid to participate in public debates. And tonight, in this Columbia auditorium, it was time for them to show off their skills.
6: The motion for tonight's debate is this house would eliminate cash bail. The government will be supporting this motion, arguing for the elimination of cash bail.
1: After a coin toss that determined which side each team would take.
3: It's tails. Columbia, what side would you like to be, government or opposition?
1: I uh, will say government.
3: Rikers Debate Project will be side opposition.
1: The debate started.
3: Without further ado, we can get started with the uh, prime minister. Yeah, is everyone ready to begin? Firstly, on what is
1: cash bail?
2: uh, The Columbia
1: students representing the government laid out their arguments why cash bail should be abolished. And then the opposition team, led by the former prisoners, rebutted. Distinguished judges, audience members, the government's proposing to do away with cash bail today. In support of this, they've offered criticisms of the current bail system. But these show only problems that can be reformed, not problems inherent in the nature. Cash bail. Coaching the two former Rikers prisoners was Camilla Broderick.
6: I was the inaugural fellow with the Rikers Debate Project, and I oversee the fellowship program.
1: Camilla is currently pursuing a master's degree in social work at Columbia, but she learned her debating skills at Rikers.
6: I served a eight month sentence on Rikers Island. I was a heroin addict. Um, I had been a heroin addict since I was 18.
1: And like many people battling addictions, she had run-ins with the law. Her first was opening up bank accounts for her drug dealer.
6: He would give me drugs for opening them up, like a very minuscule amount, like $50 worth.
1: It turns out these accounts helped him steal money through identity theft.
6: And so I was charged with grand larceny for that.
1: Plus, she once sold a small bag of heroin to an undercover cop.
6: So that landed me with two felonies that got me a year, a city year.
1: And so she was sent to Rikers.
6: When I first got there, I was actually in the psychiatric unit, and they put me on suicide watch. You don't get a blanket, you don't get a sheet, you don't get a book, you don't get anything. And I'd never been to jail before, so I was scared.
1: But two months into her imprisonment, after being transferred out of the psychiatric unit, an officer came up and mentioned that there would soon be a debate class held.
6: And I was like, okay, I'll give this a try.
1: Camilla can't remember the debate topic for that first day, but she took to it right away. She liked the challenge of seeing things from different perspectives. She also found that debate's demands to frame issues logically and speak persuasively helped her in other aspects of her life. But a big part of why she loved the debate program was simply because it gave her some positive reinforcement and connection at a vulnerable time.
6: The volunteers that came, they came every week. And I know this isn't central to debate, but to have these volunteers care about you and ask you how you're doing, it really, really means a lot when you're isolated from the world.
1: Now that she's become a debate coach for others, she sees how it helps them.
6: I get so many messages from people after a debate, like, oh, when are we gonna do that again? I wanna keep practicing, I wanna keep doing this. They really like it and it really improves both their logical thinking skills, but I think most importantly, their confidence and their ability to speak.
1: Take, for example, Hashani, one of the Rikers Debate Project fellows who was debating that night.
5: My name is Hashani Forrester, 41 years of age. Debating, it gives you a public speaking skills, period. It gives you confidence.
1: Skills that you could see in action from both Hashani and Dominic that night in the auditorium. Thank you
5: very much. I'm honored to be here tonight. I would first like to address some of the issues that the government brought up. We agree that low-income people And people of color sometimes are affected by cash bail. However, you can't
1: lay the problems in the criminal justice system at the feet of cash bail. If you're looking to reform the system, the function of bail is to return to court. Camilla argues that the Rikers Debate Project doesn't just teach beneficial skills, but also that its fellowship program is invaluable for those leaving jail.
6: You can't just leave people to kind of rot in cells and give them nothing, and then expect that they'll be able to transition outside into a world that already marks them second-class citizens and expect that they'll just be fine. That's not how it works.
1: Everyone wants to get out of prison. But for many, the immediate post-release period is risky. People can fall back into bad habits. They can overdose— or get sent back. The fellowship was crucial for Camilla at this time.
6: After just getting out, not really knowing what I was going to do, like whether I was going to go back to using drugs, it gave me structure, it gave me something to do and something to be part of. And then I reapplied to my college to get back in. And now I have a very, very structured life.
1: After the debate, it was time for the judges to convene and decide who won. In the end, in a tight 6-5 to vote, Dominic and Hashani narrowly lost to their Columbia opponents. But they both seemed to take it in stride. It's nice, and everybody is great. You meet some interesting people. I'm here, second debate, so looking forward to the next one. Camilla understands why some might question the usefulness of teaching debating to people who are incarcerated.
6: I can understand that argument, you know, why would they need to ever know this skill? But that's, to me, not the important part of it. It's why would they need to learn how to speak and speak confidently? You know, these are very basic skills that a lot of people lack. And although something like debate might seem abstract, like how is this going to help us with recidivism? um, It does.
1: She was focused on coaching Hashani and Dominic these past couple of months. And now they're in the process of selecting new fellows. And maybe in the next debate, that next round of fellows will come out on top. You know, sky's the limit.
4: Walking through the northeastern Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, you will see the shattered windows, the boarded-up businesses and homes that have become a hallmark here. But you will also see art.
2: Sarah Lornyuk is a freelance producer and contributor to the intelligence.
4: How many paintings did you say you did?
5: Uh, I do 35 works on a street.
4: When did you do your first one?
5: First one, uh, in May, it was... You know, for me it's new experience work with bulletproof jelly.
4: So you're working, you're painting in a bulletproof vest. Uh, yeah. The streets are calm now compared to what they were like in May, when artillery was regularly raining down on this city of formerly a million and a half people. But this city has changed and so have its residents. Gamlet Zinkivsky, who was and is a local street artist, is no exception. Does it make you sad to see your city so destroyed, or is it just normal now? Now it's normal. Gamlet agrees to take me on a tour around central Harkiv to see some of the works that he's painted across the remains of wreckage or on plywood panels covering windows and doors. And he agrees to talk about how the year has changed him.
5: A lot of people change. Not everyone. One year ago, I don't know, it's like funny, very nice life of artist. Do a picture or project, uh, move somewhere with exhibition or just travel with wife. Before, I have a dream to buy a huge flat. But now, I don't care about it. I read a lot of books. Now I didn't read for one year. I read nothing. <laughs> Only news. Uh, it's not possible for me now. Not interesting and I couldn't concentrate.
4: What is this one? Is it uh, a seesaw? It's
5: yeah. Like a ch- child's yeah, yeah, playground yeah. seesaw? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And writing uh, War takes a lot of time and possibilities, and the second writing, uh, war gives a lot of time and possibilities. I lose a lot of everything, my dreams, I lose my friends who move in the world and don't wanna turn back. I lose a future for a long time. One years ago I for sure know what I want to see in my life, now I don't know. <laughs> but I take something new, I found a new brilliant people, I I collect a time, because I feel time, it's amazing feeling. Every morning I check my plan, uh, meetings or deals or etc. And I think what I really need or what I'm not so important because this day can be the last day in my life.
4: With his time, he's not just plastering the city with art that does bring an air to this place of it not being forgotten. He's also fundraising to get new supplies for soldiers in his local battalion. He feels the weight of his time now because his time can help save lives. So many of the people he's met this year, though, through those efforts, he's already lost.
5: Here, another flower, uh, flower of the death.
4: Do you think a lot about death?
5: Yeah, of now. course. One year ago, it was... Of course, I think about uh, death because I'm artist and I love think about philosophical... TAM, but now it's not f- philosophic TAM, because it's war and you lose your friends and a lot of soldiers. And when I turn back to Kharkiv, I think I don't want to get a new communication with soldiers, because I will lose them. But what can I do?
4: Why was that important to go out and do that art?
5: Because it's our power. A lot of soldiers couldn't understand why I stay here. Because Gamlet, you can move whatever you want in, in a world. Yes, of course, I can, but this is my country. It's not my future. It's future of my country. I am small part of very important historical process in this country and it's more important for me than just opening in london or in paris whatever i'm not interested i want to stay in ukraine and build and create something new
4: are we going to the one down here yep I really
5: like this one. Yeah.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at
2: And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
0: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovation's paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.